Welcome to Midweek, a place where we dive deep into Scripture. So grab your Bible, a pen, and a notebook, and get ready to study God's Word. Okay, so if you guys want to turn in your Bibles to um, John chapter 19, we're going to pick up, uh, today we're going to look at the um, actual statements of Jesus on the cross. And the, the verses we're going to cover from verses 17 and 37, they're not all seven in there, so I'll be drawing from the other Gospels to take you through all the seven statements, but if you put them all together, you come up with the seven statements that Jesus makes on the cross. Now remember in the trials, um, there were six trials throughout the night. The first three are religious trials because it's the Pharisees and scribes that are trying to get Jesus on blasphemy, and that's what they did. But once they bring, and remember, do you remember that they could not carry out capital punishment? How many remember that? It was taken away from them at a certain time, three years earlier. And so that's why they take Jesus to the Romans, because they want Jesus killed. And they can't put him to death, because they have no authority to do that anymore. So when they bring Jesus to Pilate, they shift the charges from blasphemy, which are religious charges, and now they shift it to treason that Jesus is trying to make himself out to be the king. In other words, he's going to overthrow the Roman Empire. And so it's very very sneaky the way they're maneuvering to the whole thing. So also one thing too is when it says they, they crucified him, and we'll see that in a second, and we said at the end of last week, I think we said this, and I'll say it right now, that whenever you see that and he was crucified, uh, there's no explanation. There's no details given whatsoever. And there's probably good reason behind that and that is because um, the people in that day, they saw crucifixion all the time. This was not something they'd never seen before. I mean, there were certain street that, that people walked away that would be lined with crucified victims because this was the Romans' manner of, uh, of um, capital punishment. And so to explain it all, to give detail in scriptures... They wouldn't have to do that because they'd assume that the people reading that, they all knew what that was. The Romans were in power in that area. So I, I got a lot of ground to cover, I think, here. So let's get right into it. And I'm going to have you cross-reference bits here and there. So be ready for that. So verse 17 of chapter uh, 19 says this. They took, they took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. Now, Jesus now will be, they give him a cross beam to carry, the way I've read throughout, some people you see carrying this big old cross, uh, more like a cross beam called the patibulum, weighs about, that piece weighs about 110 pounds, and he's got to carry it, now you got to remember, put yourself in his position, because he hasn't eaten, he hasn't slept, he really hasn't gotten any water, he's been whipped, and so his back is open, you can see his internal organs, he's going into shock, all these things, and now he's got to carry this thing upon his shoulders. Now, he's going to carry it in that verse, it says, to the place in Hebrew called Golgotha. Now, I've done more reading since the last time we went to Israel, so I'm going to do some correction right now in the more archaeological readings on certain things because I just like that stuff. Um, but when we were in Israel, if you go to Israel, you'll go to what's called the Garden Tomb. And at the Garden Tomb, if you remember, we, we, you stand to this one area off the side, and then you look at this hillside. They say that's Golgotha. 
place of the skull, and it looks like the face of a skull. It kind of looks like that, if you remember right. And the sad part, the, the, the depressing part is it's a, there's a bus station right there, okay? So it's really anticlimactic, this whole area right there. It's a bus station. But the more reading and the more uh, looking into it, the word Golgotha uh, it doesn't mean like the face of a skull. It's the word cranium. So the place where he would have been crucified is more like a dome on the top of the head, more like a cranium, not the face like that. And so much to my displeasure, and I'll tell you right now, that more and more of these historians and archaeology and things, they put the place of his crucifixion and therefore close by place of his resurrection in what's called the area where the church of the holy sepulcher is. If you've been to Israel, um, you know the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is, um, you go in anyone, they're just so gaudy. It's so gaudy in there. They have so many religious things, and you're like, you just, I, I don't like it. I just don't. So I'm really depressed, I have to tell you this, okay, that they think that's more like the area where actually the crucifixion was, and even uh, this Eusebius, a third century historian, in third century, he puts the crucifixion in that area right there, so... Next time we go to Israel, I've got to say those things, even though I, I don't want to put it in that spot, but that really is the spot. That's the truth right there. So we also know there's a man that helps Jesus carry the cross. Do you remember his name? He's Simon, Simon of Cyrene, all right? He's, a, he's an Alexandrian guy, or I should say North African man from Cyrene, and uh, Jesus can't carry the cross all the way, so Simon, they press him into service when the Roman soldier would put the blade of the spear in your shoulder blade, that meant that you had to do what they said, and they press him into service to help Jesus uh, carry the cross. And you remember when Jesus said, if they beckon you to go one mile, you go, go two miles, because they had these mile markers back then. And if the Romans pressed you into service, by their laws, you had to do what they said, carry the requirement, whatever it was, for one mile. And so, more than likely, Simon of Cyrene was pressed in that way. One of the cool things about Simon of Cyrene, we know from Scripture that he has two sons, Alexander and Rufus. And in 1941, in the Kidron Valley, which is the east side of Jerusalem, goes down the valley right there, they found an ossuary. Do you remember what an ossuary is by now? Do you, yes or no? It's a bone box, yeah, it's a bone box. I don't have to explain again what that is. We've gone through it numerous times here on Tuesday night, but it's a bone box. And on this bone box, in 1941, they found this, and here's what's inscribed on it. The inscription said, Alexander, son of Simon, in Greek, and then it said, it said, Cyrenian in Aramaic. So they found the bone box of the son of Simon of Cyrene. And I like stuff like that because it just keeps proving that the Bible is historically accurate and true. Amen? I love stuff like that when it, when it comes to pass. Now, verse 18 says, There they crucified him, uh, and with him two other men on either side, and Jesus in between. So Jesus is crucified. All four Gospels attest to that fact. And not only do Christians attest to that fact, there are non church, non-Christian historians that attest to the crucifixion. You have Josephus, Tacitus, a man named Lucius of Samoseda, and then you have the Jewish Talmud itself that also has this statement, Yeshu was hanged on a tree. 
So when people say Jesus didn't exist or he wasn't crucified, it's, that's just not true. These are just bloggers making statements. They're not historians who've done all the research. Outside even church history, we know that Jesus was crucified. It's a historical fact. Now, it says he was crucified, and it's just that fast. But it wasn't that fast, was it? Because crucifixion was really a torturous thing. And so they would nail the person in the heels, and then they would nail the person, not in the hand. In Roman times, the wrist was considered part of the hand. If they nailed him here, you know what would happen, right? It would shred right out. So they'd nail him within the wrist areas as they you know, put, him, put the beam up there and they put him up there. And what he's got to do is he, the crucified victim, he's nailed here, he has to push up and pull himself up to exhale out of his body. He drops back down to inhale. And then he has to pull back up to exhale. And so he's doing this for six hours on that cross. Every time he puts, because these guys were professionals at crucifixion. They knew the ins and outs of it. So as he's pulling up, you've got to understand that these nails are right on certain nerves. And so when the pressure is put on those nerves as he's pulling up, it shoots all the way up his arms. And they say doctors say it would explode in his head. So every time it's pain. As time goes by, his body would begin to cramp up. Can you imagine not being able to do anything about those cramps? And he's cramping up. Now, don't forget that he's on this cross up and down for six hours that um, his back is wide open. Remember that? So when they get there, if they threw him on the ground, he, it fills with all kind of dirt and gravel. And then as he goes up and down, his back is against that beam of wood. And so he's rubbing up and down and up and down for six hours. And then don't forget that he can't do anything. And so birds of prey, they know, they see this all the time, they would land on these crucified victims and they start to pick at the wounds of the crucified victim. And so there's more to it. But that gives you a little bit more of what Jesus is actually going through on the cross for six hours of his life before he finally dies on that cross. Now, verse 19 says this, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews, verse 20. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near... Uh, uh, was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. Now, guys, Hebrew is the, the language of, obviously, the Hebrews. Greek is kind of, is, is the language of, during Alexander the Great, before the Roman Empire, they were Hellenized in the Greek culture, so they speak Greek, but also in Latin, because the Romans, and Latin was the language of the whole world. So if anybody walking by that area, you, everybody could understand what that sign was saying, no matter what, no matter who it was. So verse 21, so the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, because they're offended because of what Pilate wrote, but, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have, I have written. That's just what it is, guys, and we're not going to change anything. Now, in your notes, your bullet point, here's your first one, if you're taking notes, and that is this, Pilate answers his own question. Now, I find this very interesting, and I find it, well, you'll see in a second. Now, what do I mean by that? Look back at chapter 18 and verse 33. Look back earlier in the trial um, with, with Pontius Pilate. In verse 33 of chapter 18, it says, Therefore Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, What does he ask Jesus? Are you the king of the Jews? Right? 
He asks him the question. Well, okay, then go back to verse 19 of chapter 19. Now watch, we see it again. We just read it. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the what? The king of the Jews. So Pilate asked Jesus the question, and Pilate answers his own question. Don't you just love that? Now, here's what's even better about that. The Pharisees, scribes, all the religious leaders, are they happy about that? They're not happy because they want Pilate to change it from the king of the Jews to, no, he said he was the king of the Jews. Not that he was the king of the Jews, but it's almost like Pilate, when he says, what I've written, I've written, it's almost like he's just going to stick it to him, man. I'm just, you guys got me? No, I'm going to get you guys. But here's what's even more, and if you do more reading on the subject, you find this out. When the words are put up there, Jesus, the Nazarene king of the Jews, in Hebrew, the language, the four main words, the first letter of each of those four words are Yod, He, Wad, He. We know it as Y-H-W-H. What word do we get from that? Yahweh. In Hebrew, it's only consonants, and then you have what's called jots and tittles at the top, and that gives your vowel sound. And so Pilate, when he puts that up there in that order right there, basically, what he, or, you know, this way, because they read it backwards, he's telling them, this is Yahweh. I don't know if he did it on purpose or not, but if he did, can you imagine? He really got those guys good, did he not? So I like stuff like that too. Now, verse 23 says this, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one, uh, one piece, verse 24. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, this is, a, uh, this is one of those prophetic moments in, in history. This is a 1,000-year-old prophecy that's happening right here as Jesus hang on the cross. They take his garments and, you know, and they do, and they don't tear it, but they cast lots for it. Now, in case you're not familiar with it or you're newer to scripture, I don't know, I want to show you um, some of the prophetic statements in one chapter. We'll go there a couple times tonight, but go to Psalm 22 and keep your marker here. Now, this is a thousand years before Jesus ever hangs on the cross. And it's hundreds of years before crucifixion is even invented. It's never even been thought of yet, guys. They don't even know about this stuff yet. Now, I'm going to take you through a few of the verses. Now, watch all the prophetic statements. This is the crucifixion chapter before crucifixion was ever even thought of. Look at, look at verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you ever hear that? Oh, yeah, that's a prophetic statement of Jesus on the cross. Look at verse, um, verse 7. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, did people walk by saying things to him, hurling abuse at him? Oh, yeah, they did, baby. Look at verse 14. It says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones um, 
are out of joint. He's poured out like water. Do they pierce aside and out comes that water and blood out of the side? You better believe it. Now look at verse 16. For dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Did they pierce him? Oh yeah, they did. They pierced him. Look at 17 and 18. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Is that a crazy chapter or what? Thousand years before the moment. Hundreds of years before crucifixion's ever invented. And this is supposed to be some ordinary book? Oh no, it's supernatural. When we get into Daniel, starting in about four or five weeks, and we get into the prophecies there in Daniel, you're going to be really amazed at what Daniel predicted hundreds and hundreds of years before these events happen and thousands of years before certain events happen. It's an incredible thing, this Bible. Now, turn back to John chapter 19. That's, I think, one of the reasons why I love the Bible so much. It is so clear and the prophecy is specific. Look at verse 25 to 27. It says, therefore the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother. What's his mother's name? Louder, what? It's Mary, that's right. Where's mother and his mother's sister. Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. You think Mary's a popular name back then? It's like everybody's named Mary back then. (laughs) But it was, like Jesus was a real popular name at that time too. And remember we had mentioned before that the pilot, at the trial before Pilate, I think we said it, that Barabbas' first name is more than likely Jesus. He was Jesus Barabbas, Barabbas, son of his father. And so if you watch the way the terminology is, the way Pilate says it, you realize that's the way he's making distinction between Jesus and Barabbas because Barabbas' first name more than likely was Jesus, Jesus Barabbas. Um, Let's see, I read all the way. Did I go to verse 20? Where am I at? Uh, Let me go to verse 26, 7. Verse 26. When Jesus saw, then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved. Who do you think the disciple whom he loved is? It's John, more more than likely the writer. of Standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Verse 27. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Now, this is not the first statement on the cross. But this is the first statement that John decides to put in his gospel as the order that he's going to go in. But it's not the first statement. Do you know what the first statement was? Look over here. Go to Luke chapter 23, just to your left, just a little bit. It's the opening statement, Jesus on the cross. Go to Luke 23. And when you're there, say, I'm there. Now, in 23, um, and look at verse 34. Here we find the first statement. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are, what they're doing. This is the very first statement that uh, Jesus makes on the cross. You know what I like about that statement? He says, Father, forgive them, because they don't even know what they're doing. It's almost like he gives them an excuse, right? It's like he gives them an out. But let me tell you what I really like about that statement. And you've got to remember, he's in excruciating pain. When you're in excruciating pain, who's the only person you're thinking about? Yourself, myself, but he's not doing that. But next bullet point in your notes is this, with that, no one is beyond the power of prayer. No one is. Who, what is Jesus doing when he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do? He's praying. Who's he praying for? All these people that have just crucified him. So no one is beyond the power of prayer. And there's Jesus up there praying. That's the first statement. Now back in... You can turn back to John 19. But the second statement that's not in here either is uh, today, 
uh, you will be with me in? In paradise. Because he says it, remember, to the, um, to the thief on the cross that repents, correct? Now, when he says that, um, talks about paradise, do you know what he's talking about when he says it? Because people ask me the question, I, I know you know Dave, but people ask me the question, um, you know, what, what happened to people who died believing before Jesus ever died and rose from the dead? You ever wonder that? What happened to those people, right? Well, when Jesus makes a statement, today you will be with me in paradise, jot this down in your notes if you want to. You go back and read it later tonight, Luke chapter 16. Um, you find a description there. But paradise, which Jesus decides to pull the curtain back in Luke 16, what happened when a person died before Jesus came in the flesh and died, buried, rose from the dead, was a believer, when they died, they actually went into hell. They actually went into hell. But hell, the center of the earth, was divided into two areas. And between the two areas was a massive valley fix. Luke 16 tells you the rundown on it. On one side was Abraham's bosom. That was called paradise. That's where all the believers, when they died, they went there. It was a good side. But on this other side of the massive valley was Hades. It was the hell part. They could actually see each other across the massive valley. In Luke 16, the man, he goes into hell. And he's, he's pleading, pleading to send somebody back. And of course, you can't go back. It's appointed unto a man who wants to die. And after that comes judgment, Hebrews 9.27 says. But they waited. So when Jesus comes along and he dies and he goes to preach to the spirits now in prison, he probably goes into paradise. He goes into paradise and he preaches them. And when he blows that, that tomb, rises from the dead, he takes all them with him and they're in heaven now. Is that amazing or what? But they couldn't go to heaven before that because Jesus' blood had not been shed, so therefore sin had not been forgiven. And so if sin's not forgiven, sin cannot be in the presence of God, the Holy Father. Amen to that one? So does that make sense? Yes. You can go back and read it later on or tomorrow when you feel like it, Luke 16. Now, we get to the third statement which you read in John chapter 19. And that is, woman, behold your son, behold your, 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 your mother, Right? And one of the cool things we can draw from this is that we're to love, honor, and respect our parents, right? Now, in case somebody watching later on or you tonight, you know, somebody might say, well, you know, my dad left me when I was two, never knew him, left us poor, we struggled, I saw my mom, I'll go through all this, or, or whatever, or this and that, and there's nothing I can honor a parent with, and this and that, and, and I can understand it, trust me, I can, I can sympathize with you. But I, I learned something for my own life decades ago. And, you know, mine, mine was a, a bad situation, but not like probably as bad as, not even close as other people. But my dad, was, he drank every day. He was intoxicated every day. And so I was a very angry 20-something, early 30s. I was an angry guy. I was angry, man, inside. And, um, and I had a lot of relational issues. You guys heard the series Cycle Breaker, Cycle Maker. You know everything. You know all my dysfunctions. Amen. Well, you think you do. I got plenty more, okay? So, um, so I, I was listening to Jack Hayford. You guys know Jack Hayford, Pastor Jack, and how many know Jack Hayford? Well, he passed away about, gosh, a little over a month ago, maybe. He passed away, and he was like really a mentor of mine through cassette tapes back in the 80s. And one thing he said, he was talking on this one series I bought of him, and, and he said, if you have nothing to honor your mother or father with, honor them with forgiveness, and I thought, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Now, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean to go up to your dad and say, I forgive you. Because he's just going to go, for what? 
And then you're going to set yourself up for another letdown, correct? And I've counseled enough adults in my office over the years who tried that. It doesn't work. You forgive them in your heart. You honor them that way. And that's just what, you know why you do that? Because if you don't do that, whoever you have to forgive, then if you have a family, guess what you pass on to them? Your anger, your bitterness, your resentment, you just keep passing on. And why don't we just continue the cycles, right? Why don't we break the cycle and do the right thing, correct? Now, let's get back to your call. He says, behold, woman, behold your son, behold your man. He calls her woman. That sounds almost disrespectful, huh? But it's not. It just simply means my lady. So it's a very, very respectful type term. Now, if you read the New Testament of the Gospels, Jesus never said, called her my mother. He never called her in that respect, like, mom, hey, my mother. He didn't say it like that. He was, he was like, woman, okay, my lady. And you always wonder why he didn't do that. And maybe the reason why is because if he did, we'd be more tempted to idolize her and deify her. You know what I mean? Because there are some groups that do that. They make her like almost the co-redeemer, like she's God. No, she's not. She even called herself in Luke chapter 1, when she's given that prophetic statement after the angel visitation, she says, behold, the bond slave of the Lord. She calls herself a bond slave of the Lord. She didn't make herself out to be anything uh, other than that. But I think also in this moment when Jesus says, um, uh, be, um, woman, behold your son, behold your mother, he tells it to John, behold your son. This is that prophetic fulfillment also. This is a moment where something's being fulfilled. Because in Luke chapter 2, there's an old man, remember in the temple named Simon? Remember the old guy? Holds on to Jesus. And one of the prophetic statements he makes to Mary is, to, he, he says to her, a sword will pierce through your own heart because of this child. And now she's at the cross, and do you think a sword is piercing her heart? Oh, you better believe it. So here's a fulfillment right now of that moment, 33 years later, after the prophecy given by that old gentleman by the name of Simon in that temple. Now, the fourth statement, which is not in here on the cross that Jesus makes, is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's right. Now, <clears throat> is that in the form of a statement or a question? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Statement or question? I just gave it to you, okay? It's not a true question. It's, it's a question, okay? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, what's the answer to that question? Why have you forsaken me? Well, do you know that prophetically, it's already been answered? We, I showed it to you a little bit ago, but I stopped short. I didn't take you all the way into it. Go back to Psalm 22 again. Now watch this. When he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let's go back to the crucifixion chapter, and you're going to find why there is separation between Jesus and God the Father. Why, there's a reason for it. There's a reason why God the Father has to turn away from Jesus Christ in that particular moment of time. Look, at, it says in Psalm 22, and look at verse 1 again. It says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's the question, right? There it is. Read on. Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Here it is. Here's the answer. Yet you are what? You are holy. Why can God not turn to Jesus in that moment? Jesus is carrying the sins of mankind. He has become sin for us. 
And so in that moment, God who is holy cannot be in the presence of sin, so he has to turn away from Jesus. That's the moment of separation. That's the darkest moment for Jesus on the cross. This is like the killer moment at that time for Jesus himself. So the God the Father turns away because he's absolute holiness and he cannot look upon Jesus or be, and be in relationship in that moment because Jesus is carrying the sins of mankind. Makes sense, doesn't it? Because you are holy. Now, let's move on here. Look at verse uh, 28. It says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am I'm thirsty. In other words, I thirst. Now, bullet point in your notes. Hell is eternal thirst. It's one of the elements of hell. It's eternal thirst. This is the fifth statement. I thirst. Now, I want you to think about it because if if you really look at what's happening on the cross with Jesus, you're actually looking and getting a glimpse of what hell is like, aren't you? At noontime that day, what happened to the sky? It went dark. One of the aspects of hell is darkness. Jesus on the cross, he says, I thirst. Another aspect of hell is what? Longing. You're longing, but there's never satisfaction. It's eternal, zero satisfaction in your life. So darkness, no satisfaction whatsoever, both qualities of hell besides the torment part that Jesus is experiencing and the separation from God and so that's the worst thing of hell is that there'll be eternal separation even though Jesus is also the God over hell he controls it all but think about that he says uh, I thirst and it's dark isn't that a picture of an unbeliever right now alive isn't it blinded by the God of this world so they walk in darkness but also, you ever notice that when you, that we all have done this, that we're always looking for something and we buy something and we're really, it really is exciting for like a week or two. Have you ever noticed that? But it doesn't last longer than that for, for most of us, right? It's like you got to find something else now. And you're always looking for this. Well, imagine that dissatisfaction all of eternity on, on a steroid level. And all the darkness and all the pain and everything else, things do not satisfy. But I like to flip the coin when Jesus says, I thirst. Is Jesus thirsty? Yeah, he is. But what's Jesus thirsty for? He's thirsty for the salvation of mankind. Otherwise, he wouldn't be on the cross. Amen? And so you have to flip the script too because you've got to look at it from Jesus' perspective on that cross and why he's doing what he's doing. Now, verse 29 says this, A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine upon a branch of hyssop. Say hyssop. Say it with me. Hyssop. Come on, say it. And brought it up to his mouth. Okay. There are two moments in time where they bring a drink up to Jesus. The first time, which is not this time, is where they bring that drugged wine. And they try to give them that, and they always try to give crucified victims that, not to help. They're not trying to help them, guys. They're trying to keep them alive long enough to keep them in more pain. When Jesus, when they gave him, in, in a different gospel, when they gave him the drugged wine, the intoxicant, he refused it. Because he was not going to go there intoxicated or tipsy or, 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 or drunk or anything. He's not going to do that. He went full faculties. He went full board. He's not going to do that. In this moment, though, 
They bring up to him what really is, they, they dip the, the hyssop into what, it's really a sour wine is what they're giving. It's, I'm sorry, it's like a vinegar kind of drink. It's a refreshment is what it is. Because he says, I thirst. So they give him a In this case, he does drink it. You see how the gospel, he does take this one. Now, here's what I think is cool. Um, hyssop, it's, it's a branch. And they dip it in this um, vinegar drink and they put it up to him. When they put it up to him, is he bloody? Yeah. So does blood get on the hyssop branch? Well, you better believe it does. Okay. Here's what's cool though. I, I like stuff like this. Hope you do. If you go back to the night of Passover in Egypt, when they told them to put, kill the animal and put the blood over the doorpost and lintel, and they take that bucket of blood or whatever they had it in, guess what they used to put it on the doorpost and lintel? Hyssop. They took a hyssop branch and they dipped it in there. Took the Passover lamb, blood, dipped it in there and put it over there for Passover. So the angel of death would pass over and they'd be saved. Jesus' New Testament is called our Passover. And so you see the same thing where the hyssop branch touches him and the hyssop branch gets blood on it. Isn't that interesting? I just love stuff like that. I just think it's so cool. I hope you like, do you like so? I don't have to say it next time. You're like, okay. Okay, three of you said yes, so I'll, I'll go with the next time. No, I'm joking. More of you said. Uh, okay, um, let's see, Verse 30. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, tetelestei in the Greek. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, this is the sixth statement. It is finished. Now, in a couple weeks, I'll, I'll, I'll extend this out more, but he dies on Friday. The work is done on Friday. The next day is called the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, what do they do? They rest. He finishes the work. On Friday, it's finished, it's done. And then on Saturday, he rests, right? Sabbath. Isn't that the same thing in creation? He did all the work for six days. And he finishes it. And then on the Sabbath, he rests. As you find the same principle here. I'll take that idea further in a couple weeks and apply it more to our life. But here's what I like about that moment in this statement. He says, it is finished. In other words, it's done, right? Christianity doesn't begin with do. It begins with done. You don't have to do anything to be saved. Purely salvation. You have to do anything. It's done. You just believe. And that's it. It begins with done. It doesn't begin with do whatsoever. But I also like the fact that in this moment in time when Jesus dies, what happens to the temple veil? It's ripped from what? Which way? From top to bottom. Now this thing is big and it's thick, guys. For that to happen, it can't be human. No, no human did that. It was God. Now, for those who don't know, this veil separates the holiest of holies from the holy place. In the holiest of holies is the Ark of the Covenant. The high priest goes in there once. He better be fully cleansed, washed, pure before God in the sense of washings. He goes in there with the animal blood, sprinkles it on top of the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. And there's this big veil that separates here from here. You can't go in there and be in the presence of God or you guess what happens to you? You die. If the high priest is not washed and, and cleansed perfectly, they would tie a rope to his ankle. Why? And they have bells and pomegranates at the base of his garment. And if they don't hear the bells going, guess what? He died. 
And so they can't go in there and get him because they'll die because that's God's presence. They, and then they'll pull him out with a rope. And so the moment Jesus dies, that veil rips from top to bottom. If you were a priest in the holy place, not the holy holy, and it ripped, what would you think in that moment? I'm dead. I'm dead. I, I, the ark's right here, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm dead. But guess what it meant? What was the signification? What did it signify? Open house. There's no more separation. You have access to God. Everybody does. Not just a high priest once a year. Everyone has access to God in that moment. Isn't that cool? When it's finished, it was finished, man. Now, so that means in your bullet points, it means nothing to add. I should have said that first before I said all that. Nothing to add. All your major religions of the world always say you got to do all these good works to be saved. Christianity says, nope, for salvation, pure and simple, nothing to add. You just believe. Put your faith in Jesus. Through faith, by the grace of God, you are saved. Amen? And that's just it. That's it. Now, the seventh statement, and that is, Father, it's not here. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Now, prophetically, that was stated also. Just write this, I think, no, just write it down. I don't have time to turn there. But Psalm, Psalm 31.5, you find those exact words in Psalm 31.5, thousand years earlier before this moment. Father, into thy hands I commit thy spirit. Now, bullet point, fill this in, and let me explain what I mean by all that. Relationship restoration. Now think about every statement on the cross. Let me take three of them. He begins with Father for give them for they know not what they do. In the middle, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At the end, he says, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And I should think about those three statements there. He begins with the relationship, does he not? Father, Forgive them for they don't know what to do. We're in relationship. In the middle, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's broken relationship, is it not? At the end, he goes back to, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Relationship restored, is it not? And so in that, you see that God is kind of an expert at restoring relationship. Okay, but I have a question. What was it in that relationship, broken relationship, and then restored relationship? What was one of the key elements of relationship restoration in that sequence? He had to die. He had to die. The line of people I have counseled in my life over the decades is long. They don't all make it in the relationship. But I can tell you the number one reason why they don't make it is they choose not to die to themselves. We all know that, don't we? You have to die to yourself. He or she will drive you crazy, but you better die to yourself. You got to die to yourself or it just is not going to work. Now, let me give you a a bigger thought on this. I think that I, I like to say in this moment, he says, into thy hands, I commit my spirit. He didn't say, I give you my body. He said, I commit my spirit. And when I hear things like that from Jesus and other things Jesus said, it leads me to many thoughts, but here's one of my big thoughts, big ideas from that is that, does God have my spirit? 
Whatever the terminal disease, God forbid, ever hits my body or COVID hits me and could take, whatever happens, and this is the answer to all of it. Into thy hands, I commit my spirit. Something may take my physical body, but can't take my spirit because God has my spirit. I perform a lot of funerals. You'd be shocked. A lot. I got three coming up next month. And I just did one this last weekend. And, but they just, you know, they roll out. And it's great when you do funerals for believers because there's sadness, but there's no lost hope because they know. They know where that person is. It's great. Now, what I'm trying to tell us, though, is that I don't need to fear death. Do I want to die before 100? No. <laughs> um, but I don't have to fear it. I don't have to worry about it. Because into the hands I commit my spirit. Either I believe that or I don't. Because he's a resurrection and life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. My spirit is eternal. And it's going to go to be with God. Because my faith in him. So I don't have to worry about anything like that. I don't have to worry about anything like that. Now, let me read verse 31 to 37. And then I'm going to give you last, last thoughts for tonight. Then the Jews, because it was day, the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath... For that Sabbath was a high day, they asked Pilate, that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw him, that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Now, what's going on here, they got to get him off the cross because Sabbath, they can't do anything on the Sabbath, so they got to get him off. And so they would break the legs of the victim so they can't push up and down, can't breathe, exhale. They would die faster. The two guys, they can't break their legs. They come to Jesus. He's already dead. He had already passed. So they don't have to break his legs. Another fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. Another one right there. Not a bone of his would be broken. Right there. A thousand years earlier, that was stated. Let me read on. But one of the soldiers pierced the side of the spear, and immediately blood and water came out. So they pierce him. Here it comes. Verse 35. And he was seen, has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you also may believe. Now, <clears throat> John is saying he's an eyewitness to the events, correct? He's saying, I've seen it with my own eyes. So we have eyewitness testimony of this whole situation. And he's not the only one. Verse um, 36. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And if you have a side margin cross-reference in your Bibles, you'll see it's Psalm 34, 20, stuff like that. Um, and again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierce. So he dies on the cross. So let me leave you with this this idea for tonight, because I like to give you stuff like if people try to challenge you, I like the defending of faith because um, I like logic and Christian and Bible's very, it just makes sense. Okay. One of the things they're going to, somebody will say, they may say this to you, that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. 
And by the way, the Muslims, they don't believe Jesus died on the cross. They believe Judas died on the cross in place of Jesus because they believe that Jesus was too holy that God would never allow him to die on a cross. That's what the Muslims say. And of course, you know, all religions are the same, right? But somebody will tell you that Jesus didn't die on the cross, that he swooned, S-W-O-O-N-E-D. And the idea that he swooned is that he took something that caused his heart rate to slow way down, so all on that cross and everything, to it looked like he died, but he didn't really die. And then they took him down. And they put him in the tomb. But he's not really dead. And then after a few days, you know, the disciples go in there, break him out. He comes out and, of course, later on walks around like, um, here I am, I resurrected from the dead. First of all, that's ridiculously stupid because where were the disciples the whole time? They're hiding in fear. They're terrified. They didn't want to go near. They thought they'd be killed, so they're not going to go near there at all. And they're going to overpower Roman guards, really. There's 16 Roman guards there in sets of four, and they're, they're trained killers, man. The disciples didn't go by there. Nobody, not, nobody expected Jesus to rise from the dead. Nobody did. Now, but think about this. Swooning. He comes out of the tomb, and people see him. He said, I'm resurrected from the dead. I described crucifixion to you, didn't I? So you're going to tell me that he goes through all that and they put him in a tomb and his back's wide open. He's lost so much blood. He's beat to a pulp. And then he's just going to get out of that tomb. He's going to walk around like, here I am. Guys, if he, if, if it happened right now with our hospitals, medical staff, and all the medicines we have, if he came out of that tomb, this is how many months would he be in the hospital to recover enough just to be able to take a step to say I'm resurrected? He'd be in there six months to a year. It would be such a recovery time, but they're saying, oh, he swooned. A few days later, he just started walking around. That's impossible. There's just no way that could have ever happened because of what a crucified victim had to go through. So if anybody ever tells you anything like that, you tell them that. You tell him the reason why he walked out of the tomb is because he rose from the dead because he is the God-man. Amen? Amen? We'll pause here. Lord, um, thank you for your word. <coughs> God, the seven statements on the cross, Lord, and everything they meant, and there's so much more to them. But thank you. Thank you for dying in our place and taking our sins upon your body and opening that veil up so we could have a relationship with God the Father. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. If you need prayer or dedicated your life to Christ, please reach out to us on our social media, on Facebook and Instagram at NBCC Norco, or email us at hello at nbcc.com. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe to this podcast.